welcome to the Human Performance Tools Podcast, and thanks for joining your hosts, James Newman and David Christensen, where their mission is to discover how people performing amazing work prevent error and work with high reliability. Each and every podcast episode is sponsored by humanperformancetools.com, where you can explore all things related to managing human error, offering speeches, consultation, coaching, training, assessments, and much more. You can find us at humanperformancetools.com. So welcome to the Human Performance Tools podcast with your hosts, James Newman and David Christensen. And we're here with Dan Sikowski, commonly known to by his buddies, I believe. Are you still calling you CZ these days, Dan? Name's still stuck in or sticking around, yeah. <laughs> still nobody can spell your last name, is that the... <laughs> That's essentially exactly what it is. They, uh... It's, that was the nickname that started in the jail. <clears throat> oh, <because> right. <laughs> well, uh, before we go too far, you probably should introduce yourself and why you just said that. <laughs> because a nickname yeah. that started in jail really could have a lot of stories to it. So let, let's start with, uh, why don't you introduce yourself, Dan? Hi, I'm uh, Dan Shikowski, and uh, I am currently retired lieutenant from the Department of Correction. And uh, I work for the uh, East Line Public School System now uh, doing uh, security. So uh, my background with the Department of Correction started in 94, retired in 2015. um, And essentially I started as an officer, became a treatment officer, uh, worked in the gang units, uh, intelligence units, and was a uh, training lieutenant at the uh, Maloney Center for Training and Staff Development out in Cheshire. So, um, which kind of brought me to, uh, you know, today where I'm at now, uh, working with uh, our youth of America. (laughs) And that's in Connecticut for anybody who doesn't know where Cheshire or East Lyme is. Yeah, I'm Totally clueless over here. Is that in the Northeast somewhere? <laughs> yes, way up, way up in the corner, in the, the quiet corner. Hey, yeah. So Dave's in uh, Tucson right now, so he's kind of uh, three hours um, behind us. So he's just oh, okay. in, uh, uh, yeah. m- mid-afternoon over there. Appreciate your coming on, though, Dan, and, and uh, sure enjoying the opportunity to meet you. I'm, I'm really curious as to... You know, what drew you to uh, the corrections occupation? And I, and I understand you actually were a drummer at one time. Uh, and, and James and you had done some jamming and some had some good times together. So don't forget True. about that part of your life. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, I will. Uh, that was, uh, um, I don't know, how, how far ago was, was that? 30 years ago? That was 1994, and man, you're getting old. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, yeah, James, he was actually, there's nobody in this world that can cover a song called I Want Out by a band called Halloween. Including me. (laughs) And, uh, no, he killed it. And uh, it's apropos for for this time of year. So uh, anyone listening, go check out I Want Out. And that's our buddy, James. Oh, my God. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah back when we both had more hair. <laughs> <laughs> we were rock stars, man. <laughs> yeah, we were <laughs> for a minute. You still uh, are, though. Yeah. Nah, we, uh, you know, we like to uh, play the role. Give us, it's a justification for acting juvenile once in a while. There you go. There you um, go. But, yeah. And uh, so, Dave, you asked how I got 
into corrections? Yeah. Um, yeah. Through me? Yeah. Okay. Is that something that has a story? Uh, I would imagine it does. Yes. Um, what happened was uh, I had always longed to work in, in law enforcement. <clears throat> so uh, I was going to school for criminal justice and literally just saw an ad in the paper. And uh, I uh, happened to go and uh, look up, you know, there was no internet back then. So I uh, happened to really just go uh, look it up by asking a, a few people that I used to see at the gym. And from there, um, <clears throat> I got to see a rocket on TV on channel three. And uh, I was like, you know what, since my football days are over this and I'm looking to go into law enforcement. This looks like the, uh, the next best thing uh, to go in and uh, get the adrenaline pumping and working in a, with a team again. You know, there was one of the things I longed to be uh, on a team and uh, to work uh, in public safety. So it seemed to be uh, opportunity and, uh, you know, seeing uh, something that made me excited on TV and uh, people that were in the field uh, steered me towards it. And, um, you know, that's really how the ball got rolling there. Did you have any apprehensions like, uh, um, like shooting a gun, for example, or did you already feel like, uh, or some familiarity with, with that side of the law enforcement? Cause that is a big part of the training, right? Uh, as the, uh, the, the security weapons that you'll use, I can see where some people would have, uh, some extra hurdles to go over and, and getting comfortable with that kind of thing. You know, it's, um, there is, there could be a uh, trepidation, uh, with, with that. I grew up, uh, in a family of hunters. So, uh, we were, uh, hunters and gatherers and kind of <laughs> really familiar with, uh, and, and respected, uh, various types of weapon systems. So, uh, when we got into that part of the agency, <clears throat> uh, I realized, wow, I can get paid to shoot guns. This is insane. Uh, and, you know, honestly, uh, the tactical side of things is, uh, was a whole new element, you know, and in uh, how to use teams and movement uh, to uh, create new perimeters during disturbances and, uh, you know, um, different baton trainings and not less lethal uh, options. So, uh, in, in that side of things, uh, there was more interest in uh, this, the, the tactics behind it, and it kind of blurred any kind of um, fears. You know, the only fear and apprehension in that world for me was failing in front of my friends on a range, you know. Sure. <laughs> There's stress in, just in that, you know. So one of the things that you and I talked about before that, that kind of blew me away because I didn't understand uh, there were differences, but from, and I'm jumping right into this, by the way. So, uh, but from prison to prison, you said there's like different setups depending on perhaps the security level. But one of the systems that you had in place, um, at least locally, uh, where the guards were right with the prisoners instead of complete isolation or, or how did, can you explain that a little bit better? Maybe uh, uh, so, so you can share yeah. that with Dave. Yeah. So, Essentially, you know, um, after talking to 
many people that work in uh, different correctional agencies throughout the country, uh, we took for granted kind of uh, the operations that we ran, uh, that we run in Connecticut. Uh, you almost take it for granted how, honestly, how well it's set up. Uh, it's designed for like a communal correctional where the, the, the ultimate goal is to get the offenders, you know, um, reintroduced to how to problem solve and programming for specific issues. And we look at them and classify them and give them scores, ratings based on risks and needs, backgrounds, education, severity of crimes. And while doing that, it creates these different levels that they're designated to in a facility that oversees said levels. And it, no matter where they are, um, levels you know, one through five, um, they're, the staff are immersed inside with the inmate population. Uh, even if they're celled environments, uh, there's common areas, there's day rooms in which the inmates, when they have a problem uh, or they have any, anything actually, uh, this, they can directly speak to the staff one-on-one and get whatever needs they have addressed versus uh, strictly adhering to writing requests and having the staff on the outside of the facility, uh, well, on the outside or the upper um, perimeters of the the units, uh, such in case in point, you know, like in Texas, there's been, there was a staff member we were talking about, uh, specifically said they had, their correctional officers do their tours uh, up on tiers that overlooked the the day rooms where all the inmates were, and they had to wear stab vests, and, and it was something where they didn't they didn't go in and mix with these huge populations like we do in Connecticut, and uh, it was almost foreign to hear and try to wrap your head around that, but um, when you have staff in inside a facility that can communicate with these individuals one-on-one. Um, it just creates more uh, that sense of community and that, hey, even if this guy is tough and he's doing his job and he's very security-minded, um, they're professionally going to ensure that I get treated with respect and integrity and they're going to handle my problems. Subs- you know, and, and when you have things like that happen, you have less major incidents uh, because there is uh, control and there is also that sense of um, mutual respect. There is, there is that respect, you know, and we do keep these staff members in, uh, you know, sometimes a two to a hundred ratio. Uh, so you really do need to know how to use your interpersonal communication skills to either dis- de-escalate or counsel uh, these individuals. It's not like you see in the movies. Uh, our correctional officers in Connecticut are really just, they're like counselors. It's you're really more of a counselor than you are uh, some sort of hard-nosed officer. You know, you, you won't survive. Yeah, really, it sounds no. like um, that there's a lot of interest in building relationships and communi- communication uh, skills and being able to uh, work with them as people and not necessarily as inmates that you need to manage and control, but more of a, a 
an adult to an adult uh, conversation and opportunity to uh, help them to see that they can be respected and show respect, like you just mentioned, the, the mutual respect. Uh, this this sounds like uh, almost like community policing uh, True. On, on the outside within the, the uh, different uh, villages and towns and places where uh, police officers are part of the community. Yes, yes, and it and it works, um, and you get a you, you keep your thumb on the pulse of of your community or your facilities, and you see that um, any kind of any kind of judgments or judgment calls you have to make or penalties if they have to be imposed are fair and they're just and um, you know if you can prevent that kind of scenario from coming up and showing these individuals uh, that there's other choices they can make. Uh, before you have to throw some sort of hammer down, um, that's that's where you start getting the growth and you know cutting people breaks and understanding the human element of it all um, really creates uh, a uh, an atmosphere where there's uh, some some sort of trust you know and you have to they have to trust that you're going to do their job and you're gonna you're gonna do your job have their best interests in mind because once they're you know. Um, sent to the Department of Corrections that, you know, those, that, that the state and those officers are essentially responsible for ensuring that inmate, that individual safety and that they get back to the judge uh, or they do their sentence and get back out um, the way they came in and uh, if not better. So um, it's, it's true. It's, it's a very, it's a very big piece of um, what I think is, the agency is really going to take to the next level. Uh, the agency uh, just appointed today uh, an official new commissioner, who uh, Angel Kiros, who actually grew up in the streets of Hartford, and he um, he worked his way up, had over 30 years in with the department, and he's definitely looking to have uh, better relationships and um, programming for for these individuals to help the recidivism rate to mm-hmm. combat some of the uh, issues, the, the, um, you know, the, the racial issues of, of today and, and, you know, hit it head on, you know. That's, that's uh, awesome. Um, you had mentioned to me uh, pre- previous to this conversation when, when, and you brought up the levels and thank you for doing that. Uh, Cause I didn't know that the idea was, I think the, the phrase you used was scale down or to take an inmate, for example, from a higher level to a lower level? Um, so every inmate that comes in the agency is a deemed a level four, you know, um, which is a maximum security. Gives the agency time to address their needs. Uh, and then from there, they uh, they classify them after they they realize what their risks their risks are and what their needs are. Uh, there's a lot of intervention in the beginning uh, because, especially first time offenders, it's they're they're very susceptible to uh, to suicide, and there's really specific things set in play for when they come in. They're never left alone. They're on 15 minute watches. They're they're counseled. Uh, their their needs are addressed 
up front, uh, especially the first 72 hours is a big, is a big timeline uh, that you want to keep really close contact with, with a new offender. And uh, <clears throat> from there, you know, there's things that are taken into consideration, uh, like their charges, if there's any information from the courts and they, they create their, um, their scores and their, and their risks. And then from there, uh, if they're, they'll, they can go to a, a lower level facility uh, once they're sentenced or after they hit 35% of their, their time, they are eligible for re, uh, uh, a level reduction, they call it, uh, or sometimes they're eligible for different parole programs. Uh, when I was a treatment officer, we used to work with the courts, uh, the bail commissioner, and there was different court appointed programs. And then, uh, you know, they would either go out on parole if, uh, if they hit over 50% of their time, uh, they could, you know, go to a parole hearing and that's parole is under the department of corrections in Connecticut. And then from there, um, you know, they would be, they would report weekly to a parole officer and make sure that they adhere to their programs. Um, and if they finish their sentence and the court orders them to be on uh, probation, then probation is done through the Connecticut court system, the judicial system. And um, that's sort of a, it sounds similar, but it's a sort of a separate animal, uh, separate program. And it's, it's strictly done and reported through uh, the Connecticut judicial system. So that, that one person or that two people that are with a population of 100, do they have a say in the probationary hearings? with that particular individual? Like, do they have that much empowerment? In parole hearings? Uh, just, those just wondering about like, like for good behavior and stuff, like who's the one who grades all that stuff? That stuff is, is uh, extremely valuable to the parole board. Uh, the parole board is public information. Uh, anyone can go to the hearings. Uh, they're usually broadcasts on, uh, on, on TV. Um, so, or, or online and what we found is, you know, uh, I know when I was an officer, um, if I had guys go on a parole, I would write them letters in, in stating uh, the character that I had witnessed, uh, the work ethic. And, um, you know, we could follow that up with, um, you know, actual tangible records, you know, and make it more objective. I could give my subjective opinion, professional opinion, but we also would back it up with, um, you know, with data showing, showing that uh, they were completing programs and they were actually um, staying discipline free uh, and, and that they were working. So, uh, you know, that kind of stuff goes a long way, especially if they were ordered or recommended to do so. Um, that was, uh, that was another big piece of it. So yes, yeah, we can speak for them. Do the uh, other people on the staff that you interact with and work with, uh, is there a camaraderie, a, a trust factor that's built there between uh, the other, you and the other officers, uh, where there's a, a real level of confidence that you can count on one another? You know, with their, um, say yes. And I say yes because um, you don't always get to determine whether you go home your partner does. And, uh, you know, you always put your partner before yourself. And uh, we always, you know, at the academy would drive it home, you know, from people being 
civilians to the security world. We're like, hey, you know, if, if I make sure that you go home and you see your family and you do the same for me, then uh, we all get out of here and we walk home, we walk out together. So whether we like each other or not, and we may have different, different opinions about things, um, that becomes irrelevant because when, you know, the rubber hits the pavement, we're going to uh, ensure that we got each other's back. Nobody gets left behind um, and people go home to their families. And uh, that takes a, a massive element of trust. Uh, when I was a lieutenant at the academy, that was something uh, I took to heart with our behavior management program, where we would ensure that people could use defensive tactics uh, or arrest and control tactics to procure their own life, someone else's life, and um, do it in a humane way that ensured you know the safety for uh, all the offenders and staff members involved. So. Uh, you know, if they could prove proficient in those areas and they could prove proficient in uh, an emotional IQ, they made good decisions, uh, then we felt confident giving them, um, you know, signing them off and, and giving them the, uh, the probationary uh, correctional cadet uh, position inside a facility. Uh, so, you know, that res with that responsibility, at some point, someone's got to uh, have some trust in you and then you have to prove it, you know, and there's those testing measures that do come about uh, that we do to, to try to develop trust and uh, confidence and confidence in people's abilities to, uh, to not freeze, to understand what their body's doing under stress, to understand uh, how to get and break through some, you know, the, the OODA loops or feedback loops that people fall into when they're, uh, when they're under duress. Um, and situational based training was some of those things that we use and we start looking at it and you, you when you start getting confident in people's abilities and uh, their environmental awareness, uh, situational awareness, then you can, uh, you know, you start trusting them a little more. So by the time they get to a facility, they're, um, you know, they're sort of spoken for and, you know, they're, they're, they're set up with peer mentors that oversee them, that, that work with them, that do on the job training with them. And more and more as people prove themselves, um, there's more, there's more and more trust um, as situations, um, you know, are presented. And, uh, you know, so the trust thing isn't always the you know, the thing where they're best friends or, or they like each other, you know, you'll still, you can still have staff issues, but when the codes are called because of, you know, these things I explained, mm -hmm. you, you do see people, um, you know, tr trust that their uh, fellow coworkers will uh, have their back. James, have you ever heard of an OODA loop before? I have not. That sounds military. That's, it Well, it, it comes out of a fighter pilot, uh, situation, a uh, uh, fighter pilot named Boyd, uh, observe, orient, decide, and act. And it's a way of getting inside the situation and be able to react more quickly than the enemy pilot, for instance, in his situation. But I'm curious uh, if you can expand a little bit more on how you use the OODA loop um, in, in your situations there, Dan, and how did you train people to, or, or train yourself to actually use this in real life? 
In real life, you have to um, pre-contact cues before any kind of um, assault. Or, or usually you're watching that individual for these cues. Um, increased breathing, clenching of the, of the jaw. Um, there is a, uh, a clenchings of the fists, a tense stature, um, and then usually like a cleansing breath before the individual acts, you know. Um, so, you know, if you, even if you watch videos of individuals just before they rob somebody, uh, they'll, you, you know, just, just before they jump, just before they act, like, and then they go. So when you're, when you're watching all this stuff, that's when you got to decide, you have to orient yourself, you know, observing it and I have to orient yourself and, then, and I have to make a decision to act before they do or interrupt that thought pattern because you know what they're going to, you have an idea of what they're going to do. So you have to address it before it happens to ensure, you know, your safety and to ensure theirs. And I seeing in, um, situations before they happen, you know, is, is huge or responding to them before they happen. And sometimes it may be an individual just making a, um, a loud gesture or speaking to the individual. My partner one day was walking down a tier and we had uh, an interstate compact in for, uh, from, he, an interstate compact was an inmate that was in a, in a Southern state. He had came up to Connecticut and we switched him out from one of our knuckleheads, you know, because they couldn't manage him anymore. And we were like, all right, we'll take your headache if you'll take ours. And, um, you know, they weren't going anywhere. So we got to figure out how to manage them. And uh, this individual <clears throat> had, you know, killed multiple uh, cellmates uh, in another state because they were snoring. He was just a tough guy to manage. And uh, he wanted to take a shower when he wanted to take a shower. And we were, we're on a schedule. And when he wanted to take a shower, it wasn't part of the schedule. So he was, you know, being redirected back to uh, securing a cell and being offered uh, another option, another time. And uh, we had to do a count. And as this was happening, this guy was running down the tier and he's like, my partner was like, this guy is going to tackle me or throw me off the tier. One or the other, there's going to be a bad outcome for the home team. So he had, um, he had said in the midst of the guy's rage, he said, Hey, if you could build a house, what kind of house would it be? And he kind of stopped in his tracks for one second. He's like, what are you talking about? And <laughs> just broke that pattern that, that, you know, the, the prey drive, you know, um, no different than, you know, if you're, if you're running in the front yard with your dog and your dog's chasing you, then you turn around and you, you scare the, you know, you turn around on the dog. He's like, Hey, Whoa, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> what's, that called? what's that called when you change a situation like that? Redirecting. Redirect. Okay. Um, uh, De-escalation. Um, you know, all, all that, kind, you know, any kind of terminology like that. Right. Have you uh, uh, ever seen Tony Robbins? Oh, uh, yeah. He has a, a YouTube video of him talking to this, this, uh, this man in his audience. And the man is basically telling him, you know, I, I thought I committed suicide and stuff. And, the, and Tony Robbins, as this kid's about ready to break down in front of everybody, he says, those are some ugly shoes. 
or, or, or those are some really red shoes or something. And it completely caught them off guard and it changed things and it de-escalated and it did all those things you were just talking about in front of everybody. And it was, and everybody thought that was the most amazing thing. And you guys are doing stuff like this as, as your job. So I, I'm, I'm really, uh, I think we all do it. If you have kids, you do it all the time. <laughs> that's fair. You know, I was just thinking, that's James, the that there were those deja vu moments where you kind of get a sense like I've dreamt this or I've seen this before. Uh, and if, if I can just find a way to intervene here and change this momentum, this direction, I know it'll turn out different. And it sounds like exactly what you're describing, but it's in, you know, like split seconds, you know, where you're recognizing uh, the situation and deciding to intervene. They have a video on YouTube of, uh, of fathers saving their kids right before something bad happens. Uh, and, and it's like two or three minutes worth of these uh, just five second clips of like a father catching their kid by a leg before they fall off a couch or, or uh, move them right before uh, uh, something runs over them, you know, uh, and it's, it, it's really funny. It, it, that's kind of a hyper vigilant thing. I feel like if people were in this mode, Dan, that we're talking about all the time, they would probably wear out in a half hour, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, um, so how do you know is it the observables? Like you see some observables and now you kick into this hypervigilant mode. It only takes one observable and you know, all right, I'm in now. Now, because we talk a lot in human performance about uh, slow and fast thinking. And this is whether I'm subconsciously doing this or now I'm, I'm conscious and I'm in the moment when to make that shift. So I'm, I'm just curious, is it observables? I don't want to assume that. I, I just want to ask you, what would you say it was that kicks you from the fast thinking mode to the slow thinking mode. Okay. So from fast thinking mode to slow thinking mode, um, there is a, um, there's a mode you have to get in when you know you're going in. So um, when I get in my truck and I'm going to a band gig, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the songs I'm playing, uh, you know, um, well, getting there on time or getting there, finding a place to park so I don't have to lug my gear so far. And then, and then it's, you know, putting things together, doing the show. Like you're in that mode of checking boxes. Um, if I'm going to play golf, I'm in that mode of, okay, um, from getting there and how I'm going to adjust my swing, you know. You're visualizing. So you're completely, yes, you know, um, making sure you're not forgetting anything. Going to a correctional facility um, as mundane and routine as just going to work is as soon as your vehicle hits the property and you see the chain link fences and all the barbed wire, you turn into a different, your mode is, is, is on, you know? And then from there, you, um, you start thinking about, I don't know. You're, you're just on, you start becoming more environmentally aware than even you are when you're driving down the highway. So that is never, it's never off. You're, it's always on. You're always ready for anything to happen. Um, and you're environmentally aware when things, when you see something creep up and is about to happen, then your reaction of trying to find um, a de-escalation tactic, 
making a familiar place, coming back to this familiar area where, where you can manage it, where you've had success, where you've seen success before, where you, what you know about the individual and what button you can use to bring them down. Um, the, you know, those things, those are the things uh, where you're never off. Like you crack that coffee and you go to work and you're drinking this, that coffee at work. That coffee tastes different in a jail than it does when you're sitting on your back porch reading the paper. You know, it's, it's, you, it's, you know, that's when it's off is when you're at home, you're drinking, yeah. you know, or, or you're taking your lunch bag, you know, I, like I try to tell my staff, I'm like, Hey, just because you turn your brain off and you're ready to go, you know, you're looking at the clock, it's three forty-five. you know, second shifts and roll call. And the staff would take their keys off, put them on the desk, they take the radio and their body alarm, put them on the desk, get their, get their, their bag out with their, make sure their Tupperware is in there. So their wife don't yell at them. And, um, you know, you're, you're, you're off all of a sudden you're off and then some shit's going to, some shit kicks off and you got to put your gear back on. You got to get yourself re upped. And the person that painted that picture to me, the best was a cadet, a guy that was on the job for four days. He came back to the Academy. He was like, he's like, CZ, you know, we were just getting ready to go home. We had all our stuff ready to go home, go home and a fight kicked off in a cell and all of a sudden I had to get myself like recharged up and turn it back on. And, um, you know, that's when we have people get hurt. That's when we have, and the inmates know when you're off, they know when you're, when you're, you know, putting yourself on pause. Really. So the only thing that changed in that scenario is, you, you know, he's telling them like, the only thing that changes in the scenario is you. It's nobody else. The inmates didn't change. The building didn't change. The danger didn't change. You know, your mindset changed. So, um, you know, so to answer your question, you know, when you paint that picture, you can never be off, you know? Um, and that's why people, and you do it for 16 hours, you know, and at that 345, at 350, you may get a call and say, Hey James, you're not going home today. Guess what? You're staying till midnight. Um, you know, yeah. and you know, people that it causes a lot of stress and, uh, you can, you can see how it has impacts on families and it's sure. not really, it's, it's, it's tough on marriages and things like that. Um, so those are things you try to explain and, and try to get people familiar with. Um, so there's just levels of, of that fast thinking. Is that what you call it? There's yeah, fast thinking. That's the subconscious. And then the slow thinking is your conscious. So, um, um, we do this prior to making any, we'll say a critical step or very important decision. Um, we ask people to be fully present when making that. Yeah. So we use what we call human performance tools to, uh, to be successful with that. And it, it almost sounds yeah. like we train in similar ways. We just call things different things. And uh, um, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. we, we have observables though. And what we're looking for in a situation is not the same thing. Like our hazardous environment might be electricity or, or steam or a hot pipe where your hazards in this environment is other people and their unpredictability. Uh, and you training people to predict this uh, uh, behavior, it, it seems like it's next level because we can predict that if that, if that pipe is, is running, it's probably hot, you know, uh, so we can yeah. prepare for that. But 
you don't know if that person's getting ready to jump you or not, depending on what's going on in their head. And you have to figure that out. It seems like it's kind of next level. It's, it's so organic when you deal with, you know, it's a people business, you know, like, so I, you always tell people, Hey, you know, you think you're in this big security gig, it's you're in the people business. So now your brain's taking so many, you know, snapshots of, of an incident. So when you try to recall that incident, it does play back like a GIF or a video. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes the midbrain is, is taking in more Intel than, then the frontal lobe is, is actually processing. So you'll get feelings and you'll, you'll be like, man, what is it? You know, and people say it's your gut, you know, trust your gut. What this, what's his feelings. Yeah. And um, you know, what, what we've, you know, you realize is um, there's little things that you do observe that you're not cognitively trying to process or you're, you're talking yourself out of it, you know, um, before I get on the elevator at the casino, there's a guy who looks like an ax murderer. I'm like, am I going to get on? Of course I'm getting on because <laughs> he can't I'm, get on. <laughs> he's, he just looks like an ax murderer. So, you know, and you push the button, door closes and what happens? You know, you get killed because he's an ax murderer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> at least it's on video. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just, yeah. Right. You know, so it's like, um, those are the things we talk about is, you know, you'll walk into a housing unit and all of a sudden the hair on the back of your neck will stand up and it looks like any other day, but you realize, Oh, my tier men that are usually in slides or slippers, they're in boots and they're awfully quiet. They're not playing dominoes, laughing and joking. They're quiet. Um, there is sometimes an eerie silence or certain people are separated to certain areas. Um, you just, you just, you feel it in, in one aspect. And then when you start feeling things, that's what we, you know, talk to people and train them about, figure out what it is, figure out what it is quick, start pulling an Intel. And if you can't start talking to inmates, you have a rapport with, um, and some, some may come up and tell you, you know, directly, indirectly, you know, there's a big, no one likes to be labeled a snitch. So you definitely try to, um, talk to them about, you know, in broad terms, like, let's just talk about the tree instead of the branch. Let's just start broad. And then you try to figure it out based on, you know, what you're doing, but uh, getting people to understand um, that, that emotion, that situational awareness at all times, uh, environmental awareness, and then how to manage the feelings that go with it. Um, especially if it's fear, you know, that the fear is a gift is, is it's a great book. And it's, it's something that, we talk about to use to keep picking up key pieces of information. Uh, individuals will look at uh, the same situation differently. Um, and some people need to review a video actually of, a, of an incident because I'll get, I would get paperwork as a Lieutenant and all these guys are telling me they all had the left hand. And I'm like, well, the guy's only got one, you know, he's not an octopus. So, um, you know, we try to, <clears throat> review these things. And it's amazing how, you know, how people's thoughts are formed and how they recall this, the same thing yeah. uh, based on perspective and how they felt at the moment. Um, you know, well, that's, that's, that's that parable of the five blind guys and the elephant, right? They're all holding on a different part of the elephant and they all would swear that, that the other one was lying about that. They're holding an elephant. Cause one had the ear, one had the tail, one had the trunk, one had a leg, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And like what you're describing is not an elephant. And, and um, 
so your your perspective there is really interesting. Um, I find it's a, a all of this is, is a bit scary, and uh, I'm curious how you sell this as a great job. You know, it sounds like um, your life is literally at risk uh, every day you go in. So this is where you're uh, you have a little bit of survival. Uh, mixed in with all of the training and all of the teamwork and all of the trust. There's a survival piece to it too. Yeah, there is. Um, selling the job, honestly, uh, people are drawn to, to benefits and retirement and things like that. Um, and then there's young guys from the military that come in and uh, they're looking for that camaraderie piece. They're looking for a little bit of an adrenaline rush Um there's some people in the job that are absolutely not cut out for it. And um, you just, and they know, and sometimes they leave, sometimes they're put out through injury. Uh, but when I was a Lieutenant at the Academy, I would talk to these, I would talk to all our new cadets and um, you're trying to cross that bridge from the civilian way of thinking. And you start just putting these security filters into your mind and, 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 the way we're talking now and what we're talking about <clears throat> helps answer the question, you know, why do I need to know this? You know, when you have a bunch of people that you're training and you're, you're talking um, about various things and you're bringing up new notions and concepts and topics, you know, um, it's, they're, they're sitting here thinking, well, why do I need to listen to you? And why do I need to know this? You know, so you start giving them information like we were talking about, and it gives that brain a reason to turn on and start deciding if this is for them, you know, um, because it's not normal, especially, you know, I used to tell all the teachers and the maintenance staff and uh, the kitchen staff, it's like you counselors and like nurses, the doctors, the chaplain, like you folks can work anywhere. Like why in the world you're working in a jail? Like, you're not right. <laughs> like, you're not right. Because this isn't normal, you know, and um, it always fascinated me to pick their brain and see what it was that led them to walk behind the walls and want to take up, you know, a ministry or a counseling session or, uh, you know, being a cook there. Um, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of nice restaurants out there, you know, <laughs> instead of working at a prison. Uh, so, you know, those those are the things that uh you know made it made it interesting when you're figuring out figuring out why people are coming to you to work in in that line of work you know and, and what people's different reasons were so um you know this selling is, i'm sorry dan I, this is one of the reasons why i asked you what it was that drew you to this abnormal environment yeah know? and because you know, just because you talk about jail and prisons and walls and barbed wire and all that, that's not, you know, downtown in uh, regular communities. This is a different, totally different environment where you need to be trusting your spidey senses that are telling you, you know, what is happening beneath the surface. And you need to be seeing the cues and the, the tells and the things that help you to understand what's really happening. Yes. This is, uh, this is something that uh, I think a lot of people are drawn to because it's a higher level of consciousness. But you mentioned teamwork. 
you said you really wanted to be a part of a team because you really enjoyed that environment. That It sounded like that was priority one. It was, um, you know, and well, public service was just one of those things that I was drawn to young. Um, I had relatives that worked in law enforcement and I had respect for them and liked the work that they did. Uh, we had good role models in, in my neighborhood that were, they were in, in law enforcement and they were always good to us and they cut us breaks and we're being knuckleheads and, uh, you know, and I was just like, you know, that whole thing of, um, you know, not giving back in a way, I guess. But, and then when I saw the tactical teams going into the riots, um, it was just one of them exciting things where, you know, I mean, I know I'm not right. You know, it's not a, uh, a normal reaction, uh, the fight or flight. You can either, you know, obviously uh, run to the fire, run away from it. So um, I was only 20 years old too. So like that speaks to some of the, uh, the, you know, the, the maturity level of what you think is cool at the time. Um, And having, uh, having like a band of brothers and sisters that and their families, you know, um, was, was big. And as time went on, uh, you know, tragedies do happen and like they do anywhere. And uh, when you see, you know, I used to tell the cadets like, Hey, you know, when you're getting in, we have you and we got your family. So no matter what happens to you, we make sure that your family's taken care of. Um, you know, one of my best friends had passed away unrelated to uh, corrections, but um, great dude. And, you know, we did Super Bowl party benefits and, you know, put his, got a big scholarship fund for his daughter to go to college. And, um, you know, Oddly enough, when I retired from corrections, I worked as a security director in Plainfield School Systems in Connecticut for three years. And I actually got to meet his daughter as a teenager and see her go off to college in Miami. And it was just a really, really rewarding thing uh, to see on so many levels. But I was told my cadets like, hey, you're in this, you got to be willing to give not only to your community, but to each other, their families, and no one's going to be left behind. We got, we've always got your back, their back, no matter what. And that's something you don't get just in, in my experience, you don't get that just anywhere, you know, people that really care. It's really, uh, um, it, it, it sounds very military, but on the other side, you can quit. And you can't quit in the military. <laughs> you you sign something that says you're you're staying sticking around. So so this is a a drive to come back every day. That want has to be there, and uh, I, I it's it's really fascinating. So I love your stories, and uh, we were getting into some stories uh, last time we chatted. Can you think of a story that that happened when something went wrong, and how you guys coped with it and uh, recovered from it? I got so many. Right. <laughs> so um, using your training, maybe that that might be a good one. Whatever uh, that might look like. And I was going to ask a similar question: uh, What are, when something unexpected happens, you get surprised? How do you learn from those surprises? Do you have a systematic approach to generating learning and and using the lessons, making them actually effective? Some of it's situational based um, and then some of it's uh, on the fly and then some of it's um, 
uh, after action plans and discussions and, and documentation that happens. Um, we always review each incident, uh, every incident that happens, um, even if it's basic, it uh, gets put through various levels of filters to ensure that everything was done to uh, the administrative directives uh, that you know govern the agency and all the operations. Uh, so we ensure that all the administrative directives were covered uh, in the reports. The reports reflect the video. The video has chains of custody, you know, make sure the investigation's integral. Um, so through those checks and balances, um, you ensure that the, the incident was handled properly. And when you find a problem in the paperwork or operational, you'll break it down and see if it needs, uh, if, it's, if it's human error, if it's a policy error, if it's a, a logistics error, uh, you know, those, then those all have different branches for you to try to rectify the problem. Um, if it's a training problem, um, is there a culture issue? Is there a language barrier? Uh, sometimes uh, people who, have, who work for the agency, English is a second language, and you know there's been uh, issues like that uh, on the fly. Sometimes, um, I'll give you a good story. So we had an individual um, who was trying to uh, hurt themselves, hurt other individuals, and um, <clears throat> they were put into uh, what was called a, a Ferguson gown, which kind of looks like a looks like a big um, I don't know, like a big Afghan. You throw it when it goes over you, and it's got some Velcro sides, and and that's all that's it. That's all you're wearing. Like a snuggie. So, um, what's that? Like a snuggie? Yeah. The blanket through the arm. <laughs> like a thuggy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um you got um so sometimes you have to uh you know you're ordered by uh, a medical professional or a doctor to um use therapeutic restraints for an individual who's that violent toward himself and or other individuals um until they could administer some sort of med force medication that would allow them to to relax and become manageable to to counsel and to start earning privileges back so when they're in that kind of ferguson gown and they get put into a full stationary therapeutic restraints um it's a it's like a soft wristband with a belt and it's tied to the bed so one hand is up one hand is down when they're when you're laying on your back that's the position you need to be in so you can still breathe and um, then the ankles are all tied to each corner of the bed. And this individual was covered in every body fluid you can imagine. So we had to, you know, uh, spray them uh, with, with um, chemical agent. And, uh, you know, you shower them, get them dried off again. And all the staff are doing this. And you, know, you just got to take your time. And you get this guy back in. I, you know, uh, secure him to the bed and he keeps pulling out, pulling out, pulling out. And we're like, what is going on? This guy's like got the, sm he can make his hands go so small and dislocate his thumb to pull out. And wow. so operationally, you're trying to figure out on a fly on camera <laughs> right. how to make it work. So once we got 
um, a female set of restraints, which are, are typically, well, they are, they're smaller than, than we use for the male, uh, on a, on a whim that happened to work. And, um, the individual went in and he started chewing on his bicep and he chewed a hole and started squirting blood all over the cell. Wow. So, um, <laughs> we needed to take him out, go back to the doctor, get him patched up. Well, get him cuffed up, get him a, a quick field dressing until the medication could kick in and then, you know, switch the arm placements. So, um, you know, as you, and still try to not have staff become injured, uh, in while this is all happening. So when that happens, then you have to have staff in there with a, um, with like a big shield, a big plexiglass shield. Yep. And when he's, when he's in there, you keep them in there, keep pillows over the arms and you just try to keep that shield there because they're spitting blood at you. And it's, it's, um, just until you can get the medication to sit in and, um, you know, not restrict airflow, not restrict breathing, um, you know, and trying to talk them through uh, what, what's happening. And, you know, in the heat of battle with these things, you, you keep finding yourself repeating, it's okay, man, it's over, it's over, it's done. Stop. You're okay, you're safe, it's okay, it's done. And you keep repeating these things over and over until finally, um, you either convince yourself of it or you convince them of it. And, um, you know, it, and it works, you know? So um, roles and responsibilities in, in a moment like this, where you got a, 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 a prisoner kind of wigging out, right? And do you already know going into either their cell or wherever they're being kept to restrain them and all that, does everybody already know I got the hands, I got the feet, or, or do you just organically figure it out as you go or you're already uh good question so um there's two different kinds of of use of forces that we have in the agency there's um a spontaneous use of force where a fight breaks out in front of you and you have to respond there's a confrontation equation of two staff members to one inmate so even if this fight breaks out you need to ensure that you got four staff members there before they jump in um, because otherwise you're vi- violating protocol and you just, you're looking to get hurt. So um, that's the first sort of rule of thumb. And when you do break up a fight, um, you're not looking to start assaulting these guys. You're looking for control, like a wrestling background. Mm-hmm. So you're just looking for control. And then you're, lo- you're looking for separation, control, and then you isolate them and you resolve it. And um, the, there's, a, there's usually an order of operation. Once they're, they're taken apart and they're both, you know, handcuffed, they, they all get checked out by medical mental health um, for, for injuries. And then they're, uh, you know, they'll go to segregation and they're locked up. Um, and their, their DRs or disciplines are, are investigated and they're assigned, um, you know, sanctions based on that. Planned use of force. That, that kind of thing is like a, like a cell extraction where we have a team going in and we have um, a specific plan that um, me, if I was a lieutenant, I would pick my, my team to go in. My number one guy is going to be the guy in the shield. So it's sort of like fantasy football. You know, you're going to 
build the best team you got with the roster you have right. at the moment. <laughs> and, um, yep. you know, you want, you want the big, you want a good size, agile individual. Um, I don't want this big lummox that just runs straight, you know, because the environment may be slippery. They may put shampoo or flood the cell. Um, wow. So you, you can't just run in you got to go in tactically and then line up your shield with however, wherever the individual is. And you're looking to flatten, you're looking to secure them to a fixed object. So <clears throat> when that first individual goes in, the number two guy goes to the left side of the cell. So if you get it, whatever arm or leg you get based on the way they're facing. So yep. if they're, you know, so we can't tell them the right arm or right leg because in this piece, turn around, right. right, they spin. So you take the left side, right side. So one guy is, is the shield. Left, the sec, number two guy is left side of the cell. Three guys going to the right. My four guy is going to be the guy who takes the legs. And then the fifth individual has the restraints and they apply them. So once they go in, the individual is pressed to a fixed object. The, each guy peels off and secures an arm just like in a like in a wrist lock yeah you know so they'll they'll look like this against the wall and then the, we'll call the shield out so as the shield's coming down these guys got them shields coming down the shield man cross faces the guy so his jaws the head's pinned you know in, in a uh, secure area so they can't get bit shield comes out and then you can, you know, manipulate the arms going down and you spin them so they go behind their back or you ask if they're fighting too much, you can escort them down to the ground and then you put the restraints on and then you assist them up and uh, sometimes you decontaminate them if, if chemical agent was sprayed in the cell beforehand. But um, when they're on the ground you or, or a fight is happening and they're just it's a pig pile and guys have specific arms. I'll start saying, Hey, you take the left arm and, you know, put it behind the back. You hold it there and you start narrating exactly what you want done. So it, it there's not chaos, you know, amongst the chaos, you maintain control and so the and Lieutenant, comments. the Lieutenant makes those calls. Yeah. Okay. That's the, um, every single thing that staff, all the staff members do, the lieutenant owns. Okay. It's their responsibility if the individual's becoming excessive to relieve them and get them out. And it's also your, your job to not get involved. And that's, you know, sometimes that's the hard part. You can't physically get involved because then there's no one left to manage. You have yeah. to be able to take and see, have that macro view of, of the incident so you can delegate and ensure that individuals aren't working against each other. If I got one guy trying to pull the arm this way and the other one this way, they're just fighting, you know, we need to either come up or, or come down. And those are the things that, <clears throat> you know, when people are, their adrenaline is that high, they get this tunnel vision and they become unaware what their partners are doing. So they, people will work against each other if you don't have someone giving very specific commands to the staff um, staff will try to give certain commands to the inmate, but at this, at this stage of the game, plan use of force, you know, we're, we're very direct as to how we're going to do it. And we speak to each other 
and maintain um, control of the limbs so there so we don't ever put any body mass or weight on the individual's core or sternum. Uh, if that happens, you know, the supervisor has to be on scene to say, hey, roll off, get off, make sure they're breathing. Anyone who can't, positional asphyxiation, anyone who can't breathe very well under a mass of six people, they're going to fight just to breathe. They're going to fight. You're going to make, you know, it's, that's not a, a safe environment for, for people to operate. So you, mean, you, you always maintain that they're, they're physically okay. You, in, in the midst of the violence, you make sure that they're still physically okay. Um, and we also have on scene, you know, before we go in, you know, we also check with the medical staff to make sure that there's no contraindications to um, any kind of chemical agent. And we try to have a chaplain there to try to talk to them and get to them beforehand. Wow. Uh, before we go in, we use counseling staff, uh, multiple staff members. So, you know, I did explain this planned use of force, but the, it, the de-escalation process is hours beforehand. Okay. Uh, but this so, is an A, B, C, D. You got a, a whole bunch of stuff lined up procedurally to, totally. to de-escalate um, all in a, in, a, uh, in a almost procedure, right? Now, totally. not, and it's the lieutenant that maintains that procedure for that particular inmate. Is that kind of who has control? There is an incident command, you know, you, you are running, the lieutenant runs the incident. Um, so they, once, once a, a staff member calls you up and says that they have this severe problem with the inmate and they tried and they give you the, the background, you, they um, tell you what the issue is. You go down and try to, to deal with the individual yourself. And um, sometimes it's a, it's a medication issue. They're off their mental health medication because they think they're better and they feel better. And, you know, it's a classic thing. Um, uh, It's uh, a lot of irrational things where they, they just want to leave transfer. Uh, They're not used to hearing the word. No, they, whatever the case may be, you try to work through the problem. And if they're not hearing um, any kind of resolve that way, and they're refusing to come out or they're threatening the lives of people when they do come out, then, um, we do talk to mental health. Uh, we have a, a doctor come down. We have a medical doctor come down, um, and we we have them look at their. We don't violate HIPAA, but we have them look to see if there's anything that would prevent us from from going in there that would be detrimental to their health. You, right, or or you, right? Or, or um, no, we that doesn't matter. Oh. Um, they, our health doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> that's uh, that's just them. Uh, so. From there, uh, we'll, that's when we start suiting up a team and, and talking and keeping the camera on the individual. Um, and you know, Who runs the camera? Is that the lieutenant who runs the camera? or uh, No, we have an officer. Uh, so an officer will grab, well, two officers grab two cameras to get handhelds from both angles. They sign on. They narrate as the incident is happening. Wow. Um, what's going on. So, you know, especially what a jury knows what they're looking at, you know, uh, if these things go to court. Um, And that's those, all those things. uh, Once that individual takes it, they do a a chain of custody on the, uh, on the video. They drop it in a safe. Then the Lieutenant, when they're, when they're putting the package together for the incident, they pull that video with the chain of custody out of the, um, out of the, uh, out of the safe and you sign that you took it out and you, and then you review it and then you write a report on the, what you review the findings. 
Um, and then all the, the reports, the use of forces, incident reports, medical reports, they all have to match um, sure. the incident. So, so um, it's great that what you've described um, is very much like a human performance program. A human performance program, the way I like to describe it, is about detection, prevention, and correction. And, and um, I can't really think of another element that's, that's not, I mean, it sounds like that's what you guys do. You detect things before they happen, you prevent things from getting worse, and you correct things after uh, um, by, by filling out your reports and your after action stuff. So um, it, it's so similar to the same framework. I, I, I think it's awesome. Um, Wow. But I have a couple of specific questions for you on, on the story you just told us. Um, one being, uh, when somebody does something wrong in an after action or something, and you need to assign some type of culpability or, or punishment, perhaps, to, a, uh, to an employee, do you use a, what we would call a culpability model? And, and what that is, because uh, it seems like everything else you do is procedure-driven, how would you define like like say they used excessive force and there's an actual threshold and they and they went over it is is there a, a opinion or a, like what is the definition of excessive like uh, everybody who is not an expert at this stuff is it's completely gray it's not black and white to us as when you slip over that kind of line to excessive force so a culpability model one of the questions we ask is if we swap the individual out with a similarly qualified and background individual, would they or could they have done the same thing, right? Would they have made the same decisions or perhaps just uh, use the same amount of force in this example? Gotcha. So I'm just curious if you have something like this culpability model and, uh, uh, and switching out the people involved and that kind of thing. Yeah, there's actually a thing. Uh... <clears throat> It's uh, objectable reasonableness. It's, um, it's a term that came out of uh, a case, uh, Graham versus Connor. And uh, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a standard for, um, for law enforcement use of forces. So, um, you know, when you, when you look at it, at, at uh, the jury puts themselves in your position with your amount of training and based on your decision, whether these individuals would have made the specific one or not, is it objectively reasonable um, you, uh, option that you used? And is that option in a behavior management program or an authorized tactic by the agency that you were working for? Were you trained to use these things and were you signed off at being proficient in these tactics? So the, um, the tactics need to... So need to match <clears throat> the level of the incident. Oh. So you look at a behavior management model, and if you have uh, at its basic level cooperation, and then you have resistance, which is more didactic, mm -hmm. and then you get a, a level of active resistance where physical means are used to defy lawful orders. And those lawful orders need to be lawful. They can't be, you know, something that you just want because, hey, you need to say sorry to me because you hurt my feelings. You make them mad. So you better say sorry. I'm gonna, like, no. Right. Like, did this individual break a code of conduct and, you know, ensure that it is lawful? And then from there, is there assaultive bodily harm? So 
in, well, let's go back to, um, to resistance. We're going to use interpersonal communication skills, authorized to use that. And we get into active resistance using a physical means to defy lawful order. We could use the introduction of canine um, as a presence, not an authorized bite, just the introduction of it. You're authorized to use chemical agent uh, or OC as a spray. Uh, resistive assaultive countermeasures that would ensure, you know, just a, a control tactic um, of escorting, um, wrist elbow escorts. And then you would go up to um, uh, nerve compressions if this individual's still using that, you know, holding on to the, holding on to this chair. I'm not getting up. I'm not leaving the chow hall. And then you could use a, a nerve compression or to, to gain control and compliance of, of an arm and either help them de-escalate or restrain them. And then they, they receive a disciplinary, disciplinary report. Um, or then there's assaulted bodily harm, which would be the next level. And that, that authorizes staff to use strike tactics. If they're, they're being pounded on, then you can start throwing different, every kind of way you can conform your hand from a hammer fist, knife edge, spear hand, ridge hand, four fist strike, open palm, like all those things are at your dis disposal without hitting lethal areas. You're not going for deadly force. So the next level is deadly force. And if somebody's using lethal force on you uh, in your professional perception, you're not going home, then you have to do whatever means necessary for you to hold on until you call the code, hold on for the cavalry to come. Yeah. Uh, usually it's like two minutes. So, well, you know, it's a long that, time. This is that, um, Hours and hours of boredom interrupted by sheer moments of terror. Is that the, uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you don't always get paid for what you do, but when you have to do it, it's not worth the money. You know, it's... Yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> but that was a great way to put it. Um, you know, uh, and you know, like seconds seemed like hours, like one, two, three, four, like that was a long four seconds for somebody, you know, <laughs> um, and when you have people looking at video uh, online and you have little, little news clips taken, um, it blows my mind how all the, the totality of circumstances before and after this video um, of these sheer terror moments yeah. um, are so quickly judged and adjudicated in people's yeah. minds. Um, I, I, I totally uh, fell for that myself this year, watching some videos that were put online and we form our opinions based on what we see because that's what we see, but we forget there's all the context leading up to that video before it started getting recorded. And then even after the video ends, there's that context we're missing, that context we're missing as well. Plus multiple angles of that same video. Like there could be other things going on we just simply don't know about, but we feel like we're seeing it with our own eyes so this is truth. Yeah. yeah. Um, people's visceral reactions to, to violence is, um, is, is really um, emotional and over the top. You know, that, that reaction you get when you see violence, it's ugly. It's, um, it makes people scared. Um, and whoever looks like it has the upper hand at the moment 
really wins the the community um, outcry award, and um, you know that kind of thing. <clears throat> Uh, again, falls back onto uh, objective reasonableness for the totality of circumstances as they're violent, rapidly evolving and, and ever-changing. Um, and based on the individuals that are in there, you know, um, even physical stature changes the whole way things are viewed. It changes the whole perception of, of, of this. And we, we try to train staff to be become functionally flexible. So you could go from compliance to lethal threat back down to compliant, you know? Yeah. Guy can come in, stab a guy, drop the weapon, and then put his hands about, well, you can't use lethal force, but he just killed somebody. You know, it's not objectively reasonable to use that kind of force. It's, you know, um, so an emotional, controlling your fears and your emotional uh, response to things in saying is this is the key to staying in control you know controlling your emotions is I, I mean in any part of life but especially in there where um you know you're very accountable for your actions um and we would watch i think i mentioned and talked to you this before you know i watched videos with my partner investigate and access the use of force cases and um trying to figure out you know, why these individuals are making the decisions they are at the moment that they're making them. And, you know, like you had said, like, why is that a good idea? Why was this a good idea to you? Right, and right. You have to understand why they're thinking that way and <laughs> what kind of perception and, or fear did they have um, or anger, you know, they go, they're, they're, you know, hand in hand uh, in, in, in that incident. And then you look at, you watch that video over and over and over and you look at all the individuals involved and you look at reflections in the mirror and you're really trying to see, you know, be objectively reasonable in everything you're seeing. And then you read the reports and then you see, you know, sometimes you read something and it looks, man, this guy is going to town. And then you find out that, you know, he was blinded by some sort of chemical solvent the inmate threw in his eyes, but you didn't know that. Right. And he's blinded on a tear and he's fighting for his life. Yeah. But you're thinking, well, you could have done this and you could have done that. Well, he couldn't see. Oh, well, that changes everything, yeah. you know? Um, and those are things that uh, people don't always, you can't take into account, um, even on a video, what something smells like or what something tastes like, or if all your teeth are knocked out in your mouth, you're choking on blood and teeth and, you know, um, you're trying to breathe through, you know, you got, you got this black shirt on, but you're trying to breathe and you, you know, you just been stabbed and you're gurgling. Like all these kind of things are paint a different picture. Once, once you read it, you got to read it. You got to okay. see what, what is going on. And then it starts answering more questions. So, um, you know, video is great. And it's come a long way. Um, you know, we always try to paint them, you know, multidimensional reports where you could make the reader feel like they were there and they were immersed in the chemical agent, blinded by it and, you know, fearful, you know, um, it, it reads different. It's not just a, a regular, you know, bullet point kind of incident. You have to, you know, I, I always had my guys paint the real picture because it, you of what you were experiencing because that environment and those senses go into 
the, the totality of all the circumstances and why you did what you did and why it made sense at the time. And yeah, we could have done other things, but you were within the scope of duty. And, um, you know, those are the things that, you know, you can't just get a quick clip on Facebook you know, or YouTube and, you know, uh, and get the full picture, you know, unless you, you, people get distracted, you start getting distracted by what was going on and what the intent was, what was people's intentions uh, uh, with, with what was going on. It's really hard to teach people, um, anybody, uh, even in, uh, uh, after any event, right? The, somebody made a mistake and, you're in, and to teach them to say, let's not blame, let's understand, right? Seek to understand uh, why somebody's actions made sense to them the time that they made them so we can um, actually address the real issues here, not the assumed issues. So, uh, true, true. Yeah. So, um, Dave and I each going to ask you one more question, and uh, uh, I'm going to let Dave start. Okay, thanks, James. Um, something that I heard recently, um, a, a professor was talking about how society is kind of in a different world sometimes where they're thinking along the lines of, well, he's not really such a bad person. He's somebody's son. You need to have compassion. You need to have a way of feeling about people. They're still people. And he's looking at the situation like that's an ax murderer. He doesn't fall into the same category as what you're describing. Uh, and so you need to be able to think along the lines here of um, what is real and why are you having this reaction yourself? What is it about you that is bringing this emotional response to the party? Yeah. And, and so I, I, I know that I've been in situations where I've worked with wildland firefighters and they, they had seconds to make decisions and then the reports come out and, and there was an, an unfortunate outcome and less than optimal uh, in the eyes of those who lost their home or lost their village or whatever. And now the lawyers and everybody has months to look at all of the counterfactuals, the things that shoulda, coulda, woulda possibly happened. And they bring these things into the criminal justice system looking for resolution and justice. And it's, it's really something that uh, has been a career ending event mm -hmm. for a lot of these people that really just wanted to serve the public safety and the community. And uh, they, they love the, uh, the working with people, the camaraderie. And so, and now here they find themselves in a court of law defending their decisions. Uh -huh. um, you have a similar experience in the corrections officer world where you're wondering, how did it come to this? You know, it's true. And when you look at people in the community who they sit there uh, after the fact, you know, like, like we, you always hear about the armchair quarterback, you know, on Sunday with a guy who's got the Buffalo wing stained shirt and he's drinking his beer and, you know, questioning the, the coach's decision and the quarterback's decision. And, you know, they got the, they got the great view of, of it all. And they're, you know, questioning everything. And it's such an easy thing to do. Um, 
we we would show a, a video of a guy named Kyle Dinkiller, who um, was a Georgia State Highway Patrolman, pistol champion. Uh, guy was just getting ready to go home off duty, um, and he passed a guy going 90 miles an hour the opposite direction. Spun it around, turned the strobes on, and we're watching this video early in the morning uh, training. And um, <clears throat> he's uh, he the uh, the gentleman gets out of his truck, hostile, uh, starts questioning why he was pulled over. Uh, states that he was a Vietnam vet goes back to his truck and starts putting together an AR and puts a magazine, loads one in the chamber, and you hear the voice of Den Killer starting to change, crack. He's in a feed, he's in a in that feedback loop, you know, it's just the same thing over and over. He said, uh, sir, get back here, put down get back, put down the weapon, said it like 82 times. But Den Killer was shot and killed in that video. Um and he didn't land one shot on the guy and they were only about 20 feet away from each other. Um, and I have the class people drinking their coffee, relaxed, saying, well, you know what? I would have done this and I would have done that. And they have all this stuff. And it kind of, when you said that, it reminded me of those mornings in training um, where they came in and, you know, they're eating their Dunkin' Donuts donut and, you know, their, their resting heart rate isn't, you know, over 220 and they can see these things and make these decisions. But, um, you know, little does people know, like this guy was, uh, Den Killer was a Georgia highway, uh, uh, was a Georgia state pistol champion. You know, he was a master at paper targets. Um, but unfortunately he went against the Vietnam vet who is, you know, masterful at, you know, at, you know, tactics in, in taking out humans. Um, and he was calm, cool, collective. And unfortunately that kid, you know, lost his life that day. Um, and everyone has something to say about it. And, you know, you, you try to break it down and the family authorized people to use these videos and training um, to start making, you know, decisions not to judge. And it's, you hear people judging at the moment and having these, these opinions and you try to, um, you use it to thwart that, to, to get rid of that and change, change the thinking, increase the decision-making. And, um, you know, I think Mike Tyson put it best where everyone's got a plan until you get punched yeah. in the face, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, in, in society, it, you know, it's no different, you know, it's, it's no different. Um, so you, you also look at, uh, you just try to keep using training and situational based training to, uh, to, to prevent that, you know, what is it? Sun Tzu says, uh, for how you train, so shall you fight, you know? And, um, those are the kind of things that we try to do and, uh, use re you know, we would use realistic training scenarios and actual incidents to, to connect with, with the staff, especially in service, in service training is tough. It's pre-service, we always found the easiest way uh, to communicate with people because they wanted the job, they wanted to learn, they wanted to survive. But when you got people who've been on the job for 10, 12 years and they think they've seen it all, uh, it's, it's tough to, to get them up to date, get in their heads a little bit. So, um, you know, the, you have to use real world examples and it can't be any fluff. It's got to be real, 
real tangible things that they can use. Um, so decision-making and skills and tactics, it all, it would all go together to try to, to try to bring them in and, and uh, show them things that through a lens that they maybe never seen before um, and things that are useful. Everyone's, they're looking for the, the most useful things. And when they start getting that, I think um, you start, you start seeing less of, you know, the stuff that you, you know, you were talking about. Uh, the community is, a, is another whole animal uh, and, and attorneys without jobs willing to uh, take any kind of pro bono case or make, make a job for themselves or name for themselves, um, you know, and we do encounter that a lot with the agency, especially the most court cases because, you know, Yale Law School was coming in. Uh, and all these all these students were taking pro bono cases, and the state of Connecticut uh, lawsuits go they go through the roof every September, um, and it's you know the temperature of some chocolate milk, like just tons and tons of you know nonsense, right. you know. Um, so there was a joke, and I can't remember how it all goes, but it has to do with um, uh, somebody got pulled over, and the uh, the driver. Uh, and the officer got into like a physical confrontation. And then after that was over, the officer went over and opened the passenger door and punched the passenger. <laughs> and, and he said, that's so when you get a mile down the road, you don't tell your buddy, this is what I would have done <laughs> if he would have done that with me. And I, I, I was, I, I think of that. It, it's kind of a, a, what, what you were saying reminded me of that. Um, you don't know unless you're in it. Right. Um, and everybody on the outside, I, I hope when they're done with the training program and they watch that video all over, they're looking at it from a whole new perspective. Like, why does his actions make sense to him right now? Instead of, well, he should have done this. He should have done this. You know, like uh, uh, the training changes that perspective. Is that what you've experienced or? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> especially when you have uh you know, you can watch all the videos you want. Uh, it's tough to get people scared and get their, their heart rate up to, to be put in these uh, positions to start making decisions. Uh, it's hard to diminish people's fine motor skills um, and, and have them conduct fine motor activities in training. So um, in that, sometimes we'll use exercise to get the heart rate up. And then sometimes we'll use scenarios that they don't expect. And, um, you know, we had taken, uh, outfitted all the cadets with uh, radios and uh, mock sets of keys. And um, we would have correctional staff members. I would take all my behavior management instructors and I would out them, outfit, you know, all 30 of them in inmate uniforms. And... <clears throat> We would have some of them playing basketball in the gym, some of them working out, running around the track, some of them in a, a mock chow hall scenario where they're coming in, getting trays. Uh, they're being patted down before they, you know, by the cadets before they go in. And the cadets all know things are going to happen, but they don't know what and they don't know when, but it looks like a normal day. And then, um, you know, all of a sudden things kick off and uh, we had called we would call a code in a, in a kitchen area where guys got a mock knife and 
he appears to have stabbed multiple people. And there's, uh, <laughs> you take, you take, uh, well, for Halloween, you can use this. You take maple syrup and you take red food coloring. It makes awesome blood. Okay. <laughs> so we'd put blood everywhere and uh, the guy would yell, you know, uh, what his issues were and how many diseases he had that were communicable through blood. And uh, so when you walk in and you just witness this scene, they come flying through the door. You know, they know they're in training, but as soon as their eyes see the carnage, of a real incident and now they got to come to that familiar place you got the biggest dudes pushing like women in front of them people screaming for their mom wow. you know and um we would run through those things and then you know have them handle the incident management manage it under a guidance of of an on-site supervisor and you would put them through the emotional roller coaster where one second they're fighting for their life. The next minute they're trying to save a life. The next minute they're trying to use a fine motor skill. They're not trying to use interpersonal communication, de-escalation, all in the same whirlwind of emotion and stress. And they almost forget that it's not real. So when the tangible, the measurable, you know, the, the measurable marks are when we send them inside to see, you know, if what they are learning is working, they, uh, we had an, in, uh, an incident where a cadet saved someone's life doing CPR um, when they cut down a hanging victim and uh, came back and he was like, man, it was, I was, I was, adrenaline was pumping, but I was comfortable. I had been there. The stress inoculation worked and I knew what I had to do because, yeah. you know, we train like we fight. We had to keep, you know, keep it realistic. And, uh, simulation, yeah. So those Emotions are controlled. Yeah. Well, that near training, not far training. Far training would be conceptual, but near training is this is what we need you to do for whatever the situation is. So, oh, okay. So, I, I mean, that, that stuff sounds fantastic that they get an opportunity to experience that. It's very uh, um, effective. So, uh, so uh, uh, I want to sum up a couple of things that you said. Um, it sounded like since the lieutenant maintains uh, the situation, and has the cadets do the uh, uh, de-escalation or, or however you worded it of the uh, the, the 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 inmate? Um, we would call that a crew resource management. Have you ever heard that term? Uh, like in a like in a uh, airplane, the pilot, the co-pilot, the engineer, like everybody has a, a title, and this is what you're supposed to do. Okay. Yep. And and this person's in charge. And it's really important that this person stays in charge. Uh, yes. And, you know, uh, and I, I think it, it sounded exactly like crew resource management when you were talking about it. Like in a nuclear power plant, you have a shift manager and a unit superintendent. They don't touch anything. They're watching the, uh, the board operators touch things. And in case a board operator might need help, then the shift manager becomes the unit superintendent. Unit superintendent fills in. Like there's a, a, a way that, that all that is a, a practice and plan. So I think that's uh, fantastic that you guys do the same exact thing. But um, one of the words you used a, a handful of times is the words that we use in our training a handful of times, and that's positive control. Mm -hmm. And I love this. Uh, um, we approach this thing that in our static world, of a power plant or a substation or 
something, we'll just say static, we approach this and we need to maintain configuration control uh, of this valve needs to be in this position, the switch needs to be in this position or whatever, but we maintain that positive control. And that's the goal is to um, keep it and maintain it. And it seems like now you're working in dynamic um, where things can change and you don't really know what's, what can get thrown at you. And I don't want to say that, that, that uh, utility world, for example, is all static. It's certainly not, but it's way more static than dealing with people. And I, I find that this live simulation training is, is, is just amazing. Uh, and I think it's a great solution to the dynamic, uh, all the things that could come at you. Um, and I'm just really uh, glad there are people around that are teaching this stuff. I wish I could get my eyes on that training, you know? Uh, it, it seems like it, it's, it's gotta be intense, all of it, you know? It, uh, it is, uh, and you know, it's, it's relatively new. It's, it's only been happening probably for the past six years, you know? It's not something oh, that wow. um, has been around for a long time, but we found that it's been uh, highly effective in uh, giving people a realistic uh, view at doing uh, the job. And uh, when, we, when we train our instructors or our instructor trainer courses, those are done to a higher level um, so that, you know, there's some empathy and, you know, when they're training, you know, the people below them and, and the people below them, the, the officer, the cadets and the officers uh, that, or, or nurses or maintenance people that <clears throat> we have instructors that can, um, no matter what kind of question or scenarios thrown their way, they can answer it um, with, with confidence and with integrity, you know, that, uh, man, this person's been through X, Y, and Z. It's been there. It's been proven to work. And, um, you know, that's, that's been a huge thing for us was the, uh, the quality of, of trainers or instructor trainers that, that we put out and the development of those individuals, mm -hmm. um, has, has reigned key, you know, uh, in, in all that, um, Switching gears one second. Did I ask, actually answer your question about the disciplinary process for staff that did I get sidetracked with that? The culpability model piece. Culpability. Yeah. Um, I, I felt was, like we were pretty good. Uh, okay. One of the things that we use is a, uh, we call it a substitution analysis where, um, and, and you were talking about objectionably reasonable as, as a, uh, we don't really need to use substitution analysis because we ask ourselves, is that objectionably reasonable for them to be doing this once we understand the context of the situation better? So I do feel like you did a good job with that one. Okay. Um, I really liked the way you were seeking understanding uh, from multiple perspectives and that variety of uh, different people from different angles seeing different things. And there isn't just one truth with the capital T there really are many different ways of looking at an event. Uh, and so it's, it's uh, uh, something that maybe more people should do instead of just using the, uh, the, the bias that they have after the fact where they, they are saying, well, you know, I saw it this way and that's the way it is, you know? <laughs> so Right, right, right. That's toxic. It, yeah, it can become dangerous. You, you, I, I couldn't agree more. One of the yeah. things I learned years ago has a lot to do with this particular 
I'm going to call it a tactic. Like if you have one video and you want to push an agenda and that video, even though it doesn't give you the context of it, you're going to share that with the public, right? You're going to push that agenda. So here's, um, I, I've heard this, I, I haven't experienced this. So, and, and it kind of makes sense to me. Um, if you get in a car accident, for example, and you end up in a courtroom and the insurance company pays another company to recreate that, that in an electronic model where they can show people what happened by saying this car was going this way, this car was going this way, and this is where you made the mistake. Even if it's 100% not true, the model in a courtroom appears as fact because uh -huh. it's a perspective that's being pushed on the people that they want to push their agenda for yeah. that perspective. So they recreate the electronic model and guess who can't afford that stuff? It's the people who are fighting the insurance company, right? Right. Um, so, uh, if you have a jury, you could have that stacked against you. It, it's, there's a, there's a whole research model on this. I, I forget, I don't want to cite it, uh, cause, I, uh, I don't remember it, <laughs> but it, it's, it's a real interesting way to give somebody the truth, even though it's not the truth. Uh, and, and knowing that that kind of thing exists, it's certainly whenever I see a piece of video it, it, and it's. I don't want to say designed, but it normally will evoke emotions. I, I do my best to mm -hmm. uh, uh, understand that there's different perspectives and there's a whole bunch of stuff that happened before this video is being shot. Uh, and I mean, we use in our training sometimes people making some ridiculous mistakes and you're starting to wonder why was somebody recording this video to begin with, right? Like what was the thing that made them think, you know, uh, yeah hey, we need to turn this on and uh, uh, maybe something's going to happen. I've seen airplane crashes, helicopter crashes, where it's like, why was this on video? Well, the day before, they did something very similar and people were saying, man, it's just a matter of time before something happens. And yeah. so I'm going to catch it on video, you know. It's, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Dan, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, and your insights and, and your candor and honesty here and the way that you've answered so many questions from both a reliability and a performance perspective. Um, I'm really glad that James thought to invite you to, into this podcast environment. Yeah, it was my pleasure. It was great meeting you. Dan, thanks for your time uh, uh, tonight. It was uh, awesome. Uh, getting to the uh, nitty gritty on some of this stuff. And I know for a fact, we could probably talk for another four hours on this stuff, but we do have to <laughs> give you a break. So uh, I appreciate it. And uh, um, if, if, uh, uh, if it feels right to do so, we might have you back. <laughs> oh, that sounds great. It sounds great. You sure you don't want to do video? We're a bunch of handsome guys. I'm telling you. <laughs> oh, I tell you. Yeah. <laughs> It's very tempting, as good looking as James is. You know? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a big lion, a big lion in the background. Jeez. Right. Got to step up my game. Yeah. <laughs> I got a glass ball. That's about it. There you go. There you go. <laughs> and uh, and all, the, all the ducks and the wildlife. I got to step up my game, man. Yeah. Jeez, you guys. Get attention to that background. Yeah. yeah. Making it look like the home office is the place to be, huh? It does. <laughs> all right. All right. right. It's great talking to you. And we'll all right. Thanks, Dan. Stay safe, guys. You too. Okay. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening and learning with us. If you would like to hear more, click like and subscribe. James and David would like to thank their guest, 
you the listener, and their sponsor, humanperformancetools.com. Please check them out for all your error management needs. More exciting episodes coming soon. Remember to use human performance tools when it matters the most.